As we prepare to open God's word, let's pray and ask that he would bless it to us. Let's pray. Eternal Father, who has spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past, but in these last days in your Son, the incarnate word, we pray that you will open the mouth of your servant to proclaim that word in the power of the Spirit. And we pray that this same Spirit will open the hearts of its hearers here assembled to receive your holy gospel and write on their hearts your holy law, even as you have promised. All of this, gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And would you please turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to 1 Peter. We'll be considering 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16 as our sermon text this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13 and reading through verse 16. And pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, for well over a decade, as I'm sure uh, many of you are aware, Michael Phelps was the greatest swimmer in the world, Uh, and it wasn't even really close. He He is, to this day, the most decorated Olympian ever. And he has almost no silver and bronze medals. In other words, he almost always won the races that he competed in, almost always got the gold. And when someone asked him one time, a reporter or or somebody asked him, uh, what is your motivation for working so hard? What's your motivation for uh, trying to win so much? He said, my motivation is not wanting to lose, wanting to do something that no one else had done before. And he did it, didn't he? He won time and time and time again. He was the best. He's still the best ever. Since the age of seven, he had been a competitive swimmer. He, uh, as a teenager, he had a five-year streak, apparently, where he swam every day during those five years and twice on his birthday as a special birthday present to himself. He even swam on Sunday in high school uh, because he and his coach realized that that would give him a competitive advantage over all the other high schoolers who were taking Sunday off. He'd have 50 extra training days per year over them. When he was training for the 2008 Olympics, he swam 80,000 uh, 80, meters every week. I was about to say kilometers, but that, that cannot be right. 80,000 80, meters every week, which is about 50 miles per week, which is more than probably at least most of us walk or run even in a week. He ate 8,000 to 10,000 calories a day, and he said at that time, eat, sleep, and swim. That's all I can do. What's the point? Why am I talking so much about Michael Phelps? Well, Michael Phelps illustrates for us this all-controlling desire to win that he had changed everything about the way he lived his life. He illustrates for us that what we hope in controls how we live. He hoped most in winning. And that controlled everything about the way he lived. It controlled how he ate. It controlled how he spent his time. It controlled everything about how he lived, what he hoped in, which was winning more than anything. 
And this is a connection that Peter makes for us in our passage today as well, that what we hope in controls how we live. What we hope in controls how we live. And so we'll think today about how Peter makes this connection for the elect exiles to whom he's writing in this letter. He addresses this letter at the beginning. If you look back to verses uh, 1 and 2, he addresses this letter to a group of churches in Asia Minor. These are churches which uh, were, based on the rest of the letter, we know experiencing persecution of various kinds. These are those, he calls them elect exiles, those who are chosen by God, they're elect, but they're away from their true home, they're away from their heavenly home, they're kept away from it for this time, they don't necessarily belong where they are. And that's much like us today as well, isn't it? As the church, we are those chosen by God. We've been chosen by God, and yet we are away from our heavenly home, away from our true home. We are exiles in this world. And we still experience persecution in this day, don't we? Just like in Peter's day, all kinds of different types of persecution. This message that Peter gives to the elect exiles, how he, tells them, uh, how he tells them how to live in this passage is very much for us today as well. And so we'll think today about how Peter makes this connection for these elect exiles and for us between what we hope in and how we live. We'll think about it in two points this morning. First, a life of hope, and second, a life of holiness. So our two points this morning will be a life of hope and a life of holiness. So first, a life of hope. Peter begins in verse 13 of this passage by saying, Therefore, therefore, Peter said, and it's important that we pay attention to this little word, therefore, that Peter begins this section with. Because what he's drawing our attention to is the fact that what he's about to say is grounded in all of the gospel truths that he's, that he's listed, that he's laid out for us in verses 3 through 12, those wonderful gospel truths that we read a little bit earlier in the service. Verses 13 through 16 are grounded in those things. That's why he can say what he does in verses 13 through 16, because he's talked about the salvation the Father has won through Christ in the Spirit. He's talked about the fact that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. He's talked about the incredible inheritance which is being kept for us. He's told us who we are, those who are born again, who belong to Christ, and he's told us the hope that we have, our inheritance in heaven and ultimately eternal life with our God. And so this is why Peter can give these commands that he does in verses 13 through 16. He's told us who we are, and now he's going to tell us how we ought to live in light of this how we should live in light of who we are. And the main command of this opening verse of verse 13 is set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter tells us that the life of an elect exile is first of all a life of hope. And what is this hope? Peter tells us what this hope is. What is our hope in? It's in the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Most simply, this hope is Christ's return and the grace that he will bring with him, the grace of a church vindicated from her enemies, the grace of the resurrection of the dead, the grace of the new heavens and the new earth. And this grace is the fulfillment of so much longing, isn't it? Because this grace represents the end of suffering. It represents the end of exile, the end of 
all the, for these, exi these exiles who are persecuted, and for us, the end of so much social persecution, perhaps family persecution for them, perhaps for us as well, financial or work problems that they were experiencing, even physical persecution that Peter talks about in this letter that they were experiencing. This represents the end of it when Christ returns, the end of their exile, the end of their suffering, and for us as well, the end of our exile, the end of our suffering, the end of our persecution. This is grace which will exceed our wildest expectations, brothers and sisters. Grace which will bring restored relationships with those around us, a country that we can call home finally, the new heavens and the new earth. And Peter exhorts us to set our hope fully on this grace. In other words, to set our hope ultimately on this grace, to the exclusion of other ultimate sources of hope. There are certainly many things that we hope in in this life, aren't there? We hope in our kids getting, growing up and uh, getting good jobs and being successful, being happy. We hope uh, many things for our children's futures. We hope even in good weather, don't we? Especially perhaps this spring we've been hoping in good weather in, in Southern California. Sometimes we even hope in our government and our elected officials that they'll institute just laws, that they'll let us uh, continue to worship our God in peace. But Peter tells us here that there's only one ultimate source of hope, and that's the grace that Christ will bring with his return. So we may hope in the weather that it'll be nice and sunny. We may hope in our children's futures that they'll be happy. We may even hope that the government will continue to be just. But there's only one place that we, can, that we should set our ultimate hopes because none of those other hopes, none of those other things that we look to and that we, hope, uh, that we hope in can fulfill our deepest longings. None of those other things can solve our deepest problems as the return of Christ can and will. Peter tells us the why here as well. Why should this be our ultimate hope? And it's really because hope is so intertwined with our identity as Christians. Look back to verse 3 uh, of, of 1 Peter chapter 1, where he talks about, he says that the Father has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. In other words, as Christians, this is now who we are. We are a hoping people. We are those loved by the Father, redeemed by Christ, and who therefore have a living hope. The reason that Peter exhorts us to place our hope ultimately on the day of the Lord is that we've been born again to this hope. We are a hoping people as Christians. In a real way, this is the purpose for which we were chosen, for which we were redeemed, for which we were born again, is in order that we might have this grace of Christ as our true and ultimate and living hope, in order that you might have this grace of Christ as your true and ultimate and living hope. Peter tells us how we are to carry out this command using two images at the beginning of this verse. The first image that he gives us is this uh, image of preparing our minds for action. And literally what this translates to is girding up the loins of your mind, Peter says. That's not an image that we use so much in our day anymore, but this is the image of if somebody was wearing a long robe in those days and they needed more mobility, they would tuck it into their belt, gird up the loins, right? If you needed to go run somewhere, you need to go into battle, you tuck your robe into your belt. We might say today, rolling up our sleeves. It's an image of preparedness, of being ready. 
In Exodus chapter 12, the Israelites were commanded to eat the Passover meal with their loins girded, with their sandals on their feet, and with their staff in their hand. They were prepared. They were to be prepared for God's redemption. And they demonstrated their ultimate hope in the redemption that God would bring, even by the way that they dressed, even by the fact that they were ready and prepared to go at any moment when the Lord would come. We see this as well in Jesus' parable of a master and his servants in Luke 12. I'll just read a few verses from that chapter. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and will come and serve them. So again here, this, this uh, language that dressed for action is literally, keep your loins girded, Christ said. Be ready for the return of the master. The ready servants are the ones who open the door immediately. There are those who were prepared for his coming, who stayed awake, who kept their lamps burning. And so having their loins girded means they're ready. But it also is, a, is an image of obedience as they await the return of their master, Jesus Christ, because they kept their lamps burning. They stayed awake, and so they were prepared when he came to bring salvation. Ready servants put their hope in the return of the master. This controlled how they prepared for his return, that that was their ultimate hope. So that's our first image, the image of preparing our minds for action, of readiness. But we get another image as well, being sober-minded, Peter says. And this is not just talking about being drunk, although that's a good analogy for it. It's talking about the way we live our, live our lives in general. Drunkenness is a good analogy for this idea because when someone is drunk, their mind is clouded. They're unable to think straight. Someone who's drunk is not prepared to act, not able to focus on the commands of the master, not able to prepare for his return. And so this is a call to remain clear-headed, to remain focused, just as too much alcohol can distract someone, too much entanglement with the things of this world can distract someone from their ultimate goal, their ultimate hope in the return of Christ. And if they lose focus, if we lose focus, if the return of Christ is not our ultimate hope, this will change the way that we live. We'll live in drunkenness according to the things of this world. So this is how we obey Peter's exhortation to set our hope fully on Christ's return, we live in light of this return. We stay ready for this return by obeying, by not becoming overly distracted by the things of this world, by remaining obedient to our master's commands. This imagery that Peter uses here, this imagery of, of uh, preparing our minds for action, of being sober-minded, makes clear that the life of hope in Christ is also a life of obedience to our God, that these two cannot be separated from one another. What we hope in controls how we live. This is why Peter gives this exhortation. And Peter goes on in our passage to talk more about this life of holiness, this life of obedience that flows out of an ultimate hope in the return of Christ. So that brings us then to our second, our final point for this morning, a life of holiness. In verse 14, Peter continues his theme of obedience. He begins by calling them obedient children. 
As obedient children, he begins. They're children of their heavenly father because they've been born again, as Peter said earlier in, uh, in this book. And Peter reminds them as obedient children who have been born again, as those who have been saved, that they ought to delight to do the will of their father. And he calls God's obedient children to holiness, first by telling them, first by telling us what holiness is not, and then by telling us what holiness is. He says in verse 14 what holiness is not. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So holiness is not living as we did before we were born again. It's not living in passions and ignorance. In a real sense, once these Christians, once we were born again, we belong to a different culture. We still interact with those around us. We still collaborate with them and non-believers in many ways. And that's wonderful through God's common grace. But ultimately, our home is in heaven. We belong to a different culture in a very real sense. In Peter's day, this was a culture around these believers in Asia Minor of, of idol worship, of the cult of the emperor, of emperor worship of rampant sexual immorality. And maybe this sounds a lot like our culture to you today. So many of the same things tempt us in our culture today. False gods of possessions, of money, of fame, of power, of celebrity. We, are, we live in a culture of incredible sexual immorality. And Peter says these things are not holy. These things are not to characterize the lives of obedient children. We're not to return to these things. They're passions. In other words, they're desires for something forbidden, something contrary to God's law. And Peter warns us not to return to these things because we've been redeemed by Christ from these things. We've been born again. And now we are God's children. We must stay so sober-minded. We must be obedient. We must be holy. And that's what he tells us in verses 15 and 16, what holiness is. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter's quoting Leviticus here, and in that passage, God is motivating Israel to holiness by his own holiness. You shall be holy because I'm holy. God's holiness serves as a motivation for them to pursue holiness, and Peter is comparing the holiness of these new covenant believers to whom he's writing with the holiness of Israel in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God is first and foremost the Holy One, the Majestic One, the One who is set apart. We get that awesome imagery in Isaiah chapter 6, as I'm sure all of you remember, of the seraphim crying out, Holy, 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 God is set apart from all that is created. This is His status. He is the Holy One. But God also in the Old Testament can grant someone or something the status of holy. He can claim it for himself. So he does this, for example, with the Ark of the Covenant. He does this with the tabernacle. He does this with the priesthood. He claims these things for himself. He grants them the status of holy. And with this status comes a certain standard that, they, that these uh, things have to meet. Come certain, they have to be treated in a certain way, in other words. Think about the priesthood. There were heightened purity regulations for the priesthood above what the average Israelite had to do. The tabernacle, you had to be pure to approach the tabernacle. Only certain people could go inside. 
There's certain, these things have to be treated in a certain way. Nobody could even look at the ark or touch it. These things were holy, and so they had to be treated as such. But God also makes Israel, his people, holy. And he tells us in Deuteronomy 7, 6, he tells them why they're holy. It's because he called them and set them apart. He made his covenant with them. He says in Deuteronomy 7, 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord chose Israel. He set them apart for himself. He claimed them for himself. And so they had to be treated in a certain way. They had to treat themselves in a certain way. There were certain requirements, a standard that came along with this status which God gave them, that he declared them holy, claimed them for himself. They were to act like what they were. They were to act holy, to act differently than the nations around them. And that's really what we find in Leviticus 18 to 20. They're to act differently than the nations around them in their worship practices, in their sexual practices. But chapter 19 in the middle of these is even broader because there we find the command to love God, to love their neighbors as themselves. This is the ultimate demonstration of Israel's holiness is in love of God and neighbor. Now as we return to Peter speaking to these new covenant believers, speaking to us as he's comparing Israel's holiness to the holiness which God uh, which God requires and which he gives to new covenant believers. We recognize that we serve the same God that Israel served in the Old Testament, the same holy, holy, holy God is the one that we serve as well. And in these last days, this holy God has been revealed most fully through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy One himself. The same Peter who wrote this book to these elect exiles in Asia Minor, in John 6, confessed these words. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He confessed those words about Jesus, the one who most fully reveals the Holy Father. As an obedient son, Christ was perfectly obedient to the will of his Father in all things, obedient even to death on a cross. And because of his work, he's won for us the gift of the Holy Spirit, he has established his church. He has inaugurated the new covenant. Even now, he's calling, he's setting apart a holy people, a new covenant people for himself by his spirit. As those who have been called, as those who have been given this status of holy, as those who have been claimed by God for his own, that's you and me in the church. We're called to a life of holiness and obedience. We're called to act like what we are. This is a comprehensive call, brothers and sisters, to obey the whole law of God, to obey the Ten Commandments, to obey Christ's commands, the two greatest commandments, love God and love neighbor. This is a high calling. This is the highest calling of the Christian life, to be what we are, to be holy, because the God who has called us is holy. Like Israel, we're motivated by the holiness of our God. We're also motivated as those who have more full revelation, by the holiness of our elder brother, Jesus Christ, the most holy one, the perfectly obedient one. Notice that in Leviticus 19, Israel was to be holy because God who called them is holy. It's the same for Christians in Asia Minor, the same for us. We're motivated 
by our God's holiness. This is the highest calling because we serve the most holy God. The most holy God who has planned our salvation from before the foundation of the world. Who has chosen us in Christ. We live holy lives because the one in whom we hope, the one who will bring grace to us, that will exceed our wildest expectations on that last day, is the Holy One of God himself. Brothers and sisters, what we hope in controls how we live. Are we hoping in the things of this world? Well, that will control how we live. We'll live according to the pattern of this world in passions and in ignorance. Are we hoping in the Holy One who's bringing salvation, who's bringing grace that will exceed our wildest expectations? Well, then we ought to live like it, to live like what we are. This ought to motivate us to live holy lives. As we close, Peter has exhorted these churches in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago, and he exhorts us today to hope and holiness. As we've seen, these two are intimately connected because the life of ultimate hope in Christ is a life of holiness and obedience to our God. We are to live as those who are elect, who are chosen, set apart, and therefore holy, and exiles, those who are suffering, who are persecuted, who are waiting our vindication, who are waiting for our Lord's return. We're to set our hopes fully on Christ and on the grace which he will bring with his return. And as we await this return, as we hope in this return, we are to live lives of holiness in the love of our Holy Father, in the salvation of his Holy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Let us be ready for Christ's return. Let us be what we are, brothers and sisters, holy to our holy triune God. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for your great love for us, for choosing us in Christ, for causing us through the Holy Spirit to be born again to a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you for making us a hoping people, a people who can look forward to the grace which will be revealed when Christ returns, the end of our suffering, the end of our exile. And as those who have been called to this living hope, who have been made holy, who have been set apart by you, would you grant us the desire and the strength to obey your commandments more and more, to be ready for Christ's return. Would you work in us through the Holy Spirit and conform us to the image of our Lord and Savior, the Most Holy One himself, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.